Tonight's talk is on dependent origination. Typically, dependent origination is taught with a 12-link model. And with regard to this model, the Vasudhimaga says it's a three-lifetime model. So a couple of the links are in a previous life, the bulk of the links are in this life, and a couple of links are in the next life. Um, but the links are as follows, and I'll tell you which are in which life afterwards. Um, and I'll go both ways, descending and ascending. So the 12 links are aging, sickness, and death, or dukkha is the first one. Dukkha is... Uh, dependent on birth, which is dependent on becoming, which is dependent on clinging, which is dependent on craving, which is dependent on Vedna, which is dependent on contact, which is dependent on six senses, which is dependent on nama rupa, which means several different things, depending on your preference of translations, but mind and body is one, name and appearance is the another. Uh, Okay, Nama Rupa is dependent on consciousness. Consciousness is dependent on Sankaras. And Sankaras are dependent on ignorance. And Sankaras are concoctions. Ignorance is the last one. All right, in this three-lifetime model in the Vasudhimaga, um, ignorance, the last thing, and Sankaras, the concoctions, are in the previous life. The current life is consciousness, namarupa, the six senses, contact, vedna, craving, clinging, are in this life. And then the next life is becoming and birth and dukkha. Okay. Uh, the Vasudhimaga is is the text that the source text that says there's this three lifetime model. As I explained the other day, the Vasudhimaga was written a thousand years after the Buddha's life, and um, you know there's disagreement about whether the depend, dependent origination scheme is really a three lifetime model, and the argument one of the arguments against it is that ignorance, the last thing down there, is in the previous life. And in order to become enlightened, we're supposed to uproot ignorance. And how can we go back to the previous life and uproot that ignorance? Some of you may be able to do that. (laughs) But uh, the thinking is that you can't go to a previous life and uproot the ignorance. So not everybody agrees that 
this scheme of dependent origination is a three-lifetime model. And in fact, there's no support for a three-lifetime model in the suttas themselves. But there is evidence um, that the Buddha had something else in mind than working with dependent origination over three lifetimes, namely um, working with dependent origination moment to moment in this very life. If we can see the links leading to dukkha and contact Vedna craving, clinging, does lead to dukkha, if we can see the links moment to moment that lead to dukkha, then we can insert our mindfulness in the gap between Vedna and craving and turn off the craving and stop the dukkha. If we can see the Vedna, we can see the gap. And if we can see the gap, we can insert our, our mindfulness between Vedna and craving and choose to respond from a place of wisdom rather than automatic pilot. There's another there is a sutta in the there is a sutta that speaks about dependent origination in the Pali Canon. Um that is a two-lifetime model. It leaves off ignorance and sankharas. And it's just ten links. It ends with uh, consciousness and nama-rupa being dependent on each other. But this model, which is a two-life model, you know, has... Dukkha in the future life. Anyway, it's from the land of the Kurus. It's in the Diganakaya, um, the place where it's questionable whether the Buddha actually went. It's also more like in that one sutta, three different suttas patched together. Um, and it probably wasn't composed in the Buddha's lifetime. So there's some argument that the one sutta that is, uh, the one teaching on dependent origination that is in the suttas that has the two-life model uh, isn't uh, authoritative for those reasons. So the model that I'm going to focus on tonight that is in the suttas um, doesn't talk about it being any lifetime but this very one. And it's only got seven links. Um, and it's found in the Sutta Napada, chapter four, which is considered very early material, composed during the Buddha's lifetime. In fact, many scholars believe it was the very first teaching on dependent origination. And as I said, it has only seven links. Of course, the shortest model of dependent origination in the suttas has only got two links. The four noble truths. Dukkha is conditioned by craving. That's it. 
here, you know, in my little line up here, we've got dukkha's conditioned by clinging, by craving, by vaden, you know. One, two, three, four, five. This is the Mary Aubrey version of divine origination. Four or five links. But Four Noble Truths only has, has two links. Dukkha is conditioned by craving. So the links are examples of things dependently originated that condition dukkha. That's the teaching that we get in the suttas about dependent origination. The links that are dependently originated that condition dukkha. The deeper meaning of dependent origination tends to get lost in the three-lifetime model and the 12-link model and the 10-link model. The shorter discourse in the Sutta Napada with the seven links unlinks the, the meaning, um, uh, unlocks the meaning, and kind of brings to the forefront what it's all about. Um, and this is really the crux of, of the teaching in, in all of the models, I would say. Um, contact, Vedana, craving, and clinging. You've got to stick your mindfulness between uh, Vedana and craving to, to, stop, to find the gap and stop the craving. And so that's really the meaning, the crux of the teaching on dependent origination. So with the shorter model, like the seven-link model in the Sutta Napada, you can get better see that. So here is that Sutta, and I'm going to read just an excerpt from it that will give you the full teaching. It's got a little bit different words than what we're used to. It's called the dis- the Discourse on Quarrels and Disputes. It's found at, in um, Chapter 11 of the fourth book in the Sutta Napada. And it goes like this. There's a questioner and the Buddha responds. The questioner. From where come quarrels and disputes? despair and sorrow, as well as selfishness and pride and conceit and malicious speech. From where have they come? Answer us, please. So this questioner is wanting to know where dukkha comes from. And if I had a couple more chairs down there, you know, it, the next one would say clinging, and the next one would say dukkha according to this model that I'm about to teach you. The question is, so where does dukkha come from? The Buddha. From what is cherished come quarrels and disputes. And so cherished is another word for clinging, which is the chair that's not there. From what is cherished come quarrels and disputes, despair and sorrow, as well as selfishness and pride, conceit and malicious speech. Questioner, where is the foundation 
for what is cherished in the world and for the greed that operates in the world? The Buddha's answer. Desire, which is another word for craving. Desire are the fo- is the foundation for what is cherished in the world. So dukkha, clinging, craving, or quarrels and disputes, Cherished, and let me say, cherished and desire. Thank you. Okay, so we got those first three links. Then, and then the questioner says, "Where is the foundation for desire in the world? Where is the foundation for craving in the world?" The Buddha answers. Desire arises dependent on the pair this world calls agreeable and disagreeable. In other words, pleasant and unpleasant Vedna. Neutral's not in there. Questioner. Where is the foundation for what is agreeable and disagreeable? The Buddha answers. Sense contact is the foundation for pleasantness and unpleasantness. And here he calls it unpleasantness and pleasantness. He doesn't call it agreeable and disagreeable. He says sense contact is the foundation for pleasantness and unpleasantness. Questioner, what is the foundation for contact in the world? The Buddha's answer. Contact is dependent on nama rupa or mind and body, sometimes called perception and manifestation, sometimes called name and appearance, but nama rupa. In other words, according to Gil Fronsdale, it looks like this and this is what it's called. That's nama rupa. Okay, question, questioner. Associated with what do not, does nama rupa disappear? Answer. Nama Rupa disappears or name and appearance disappears when we're not conceiving of concepts. It's all this conceiving of concepts that starts this whole ball of wax rolling in this model. Not conceiving of false concepts, not non-conceiving, and not conceiving disappearance. This is because conceiving is the basis for conceptual differentiation, how we chop things up in the world. So, there's a sutta called the Bahia Sutta that's in the Udana, the first book, chapter 10. that speaks to this not conceiving of conceptions, not adding on the second arrow, not doing the downstream mental vedna, add on, pile on. And the Bahia Sutta, so anyway, that's the seven-link model that kind of, there's nothing in there indicating it doesn't take place in this lifetime. It 
It's a nice, short, and crisp seven-link model. This is the crux of it right here. Contact Vedna Craving. Get your mindfulness in here. But then there's also this notion of not doing the the downstream mental Vedna thing. All right, so that takes us to the Bahia Sutta. Bahia was a follower, was a man of the bark cloth. He dressed in bark cloth. He belonged to a religion that worshipped trees in the time of the Buddha. Um, And he was really well revered. He had progressed quite far along the path of people who worshipped trees and wore bark cloth. And he had many followers, and he lived in uh, the western part of India, about 1,200 miles from where the Buddha was teaching. But it was at the same time as the Buddha was living. And somehow or another, Bahia thinks he's advanced so much that he must be fully enlightened. But then a a deva, which is a um, not an angel, but a spirit from another realm, um, whispers in his ear. I don't know about these things, but and um, says to Bahia, Bahia, you're not a fully enlightened being. Don't make that mistake. And Bahia says, well, I've got all these followers and people are listening to every word, hanging on every word I say. I must be f- fully enlightened. And, and the deva says, don't be fooled. You're not even on the path to being fully enlightened yet. And Bahia says, well, how can I get on that path? And who is fully enlightened? And what is that path? And the, the deva tells him about the Buddha who lives 1,200 miles away and Bahia goes to get instruction. All right, I'm just going to read this to you. I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying near Savati at Jada's Grove. That's where the Blessed One, the Buddha, was teaching in northern India, Anapindika's monastery. And on that occasion, Bahia of the bark cloth was living in Suparaka by the seashore in western India. Bahia was worshipped, revered, honored, venerated, and given homage. A recipient of robes, alms, foods, lodging, medical, medicinal requisites for the sick. And then when he was alone and in seclusion, this line of thinking appeared to Bahia's awareness. Now, of those who in this world are arhats or have entered the path of arhatship, in other words, fully awakened, am I one? And then a devata, who, was one, who had once been a blood relative of Bahia, of the bark cloth, compassionate, desiring Bahia's welfare, knowing with her own awareness the line, her own awareness, the line of thinking that had arisen in Bahia's awareness, went to Bahia and on arrival said to him, you, Bahia, are neither an arhat nor have you entered the path of arhatship. You don't even have the practice whereby you would become an arhat or enter the path of arhatship. Bahia says, 
Then who in this world with its devas are our haunts or have entered the path to our hauntship? The deva says to Bahia, Bahia, there's a city in the northern town named, in the northern country named Sabati. There the blessed one, an arhant rightly self-awakened, is living now. He truly is an arhant and teaches the Dhamma leading to arhantship. Well, Bahia, feeling deeply chastened by the Devata, left Suparaka right then and right there. And in the space of one night sojourns along the way, went all the way to where the Blessed One was staying near Savati at Jadav's Groves at Anapindika's monastery. When he got there on that occasion, a large number of monks were doing walking meditation in the open air. So Bahia went to them on arrival and said, Where, venerable sirs, is the Blessed One, the Arhant, the rightly self-awakened one, now staying? Uh, we want to see that Blessed One, the Arhant, the rightly self-awakened one. And the monks respond, The Blessed One has gone to town for alms to collect his food for the day. So Bahia hurried, hurriedly left Jadav's Grove and entered Savati, the town where the Buddha was uh, getting his food for the day. And Bahia saw the Blessed One going for alms. And the Blessed One appeared in Bahia's eyes to be serene and inspiring serene confidence, calming his senses at peace, his mind at peace. Having attained the utmost tranquility and poise, he appeared tamed and guarded, his senses restrained, a great one. Seeing him, Bahia approached the Blessed One, and on reaching him, threw himself down with his head at the Blessed One's feet and said, Teach me the Dhamma, O Blessed One. Teach me the Dhamma, O One Gone Well, that will be for my long-term welfare and bliss. When this was said by Bahia, the Blessed One responded, This is not the time, Bahia. We have entered the the town for alms. And just a little backdrop story. When the monks go into the town for alms, they're getting their food for the entire day. And the people who are offering alms from their porch steps um, have on, are only cooking once a day in the heat of India. And once they give out the food, that's all the food there is for the rest of the day. So if the monks don't get their bowls filled at that time, they might not get food at all until the next day. So the Buddha says, This is not the time, Bahia. We have entered the town for alms. And a second time, Bahia said to the Blessed One, But it is hard to know for sure what dangers there may be for the Blessed One's life, or what dangers there may be for my life. Teach me the Dhamma, O Blessed One. Teach me the Dhamma, O One well gone, that there will be that will be for my long-term welfare and bliss. A second time, the Blessed One said to Bahia, This is not the time, Bahia. We have entered the town for alms. 
a third time, but he has said to the Blessed One. But it is hard to know for sure what dangers there may be for the Blessed One's life or what dangers there may be for mine. Teach me the Dhamma, O Blessed One. Teach me the Dhamma, O One well gone, that, that, that will be for the long-term welfare and bliss for me. So most of the stories in the suttas, if you ask the Buddha something three times, he gives it. And that was the case here. And this is the teaching of the Dhamma that the Buddha gave Bahia. And it's regarded as um, one of the most pithy teachings and effective teachings. Then, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the scene with the eye, in reference to the scene, there will only be the scene. In other words, no downstream mental vedna. Just be with what's seen. No second dark mental stuff piled on. In reference to the scene, there will only be the scene. In reference to the herd, only the herd. In reference to the sensed in the body, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized in the mind, only the cognized. Like, I am evil. Not the pylon on top of it. That is how you should train yourself, Bahia. When for you there will be only the scene in reference to the scene, only the herd in reference to the herd, only the sensed in the body in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in the mind in reference to the cognized, then, Bahia, there is no you in connection with any of that. When there is no you in connection with any of that, there's no you there. And when there's no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. Just this, Bahia, is the end of dukkha. Just this. Through hearing this brief explanation of the Dhamma from the Blessed One, the mind of Bahia of the bark cloth, right then and right there, was released from the affluence through lack of clinging and sustenance. Having exhorted Bahia of the bark cloth with this brief explanation of the Dhamma, the Blessed One left. So in other words, Bahia becomes fully enlightened on the spot from hearing this pithy and effective instruction. And the Buddha leaves. Not long after the Blessed One's departure, Bahia was attacked and killed by a cow with a young calf, which was apparently um, a real risk in in that time. Um, You didn't want to get between a cow and her young calf, and apparently Bahia did. So then the Blessed One, having gone for alms in Savati, after the meal, returning from his alms round, with a large number of monks, saw that Bahia had died. On seeing him, he said to the monks, Take Bahia's body, monks, and place it on a litter, and carry it away, cremate it, and build him a memorial. Your companion in the holy life has died. 
and responding, um, the monk said, as you say, Lord, um, we'll place Bahia's body on a litter, carry it away, cremate it, build him a memorial. Um, and then they asked the, the, the Buddha after doing so, Bahia's body has been cremated, Lord, and his memorial has been built. What is his destination? What is his future state? In other words, what was the effect of your teaching on him? And the Buddha says, Monks, Bahia of the bark cloth was wise. He practiced the Dhamma in accordance with the Dhamma and did not pester me with issues related to the Dhamma. Bahia of the bark cloth, monks, is totally unbound. Okay. Befriend Vedna. Notice if it's initial or downstream. Don't let that downstream mental Vedna run your life. With regard to dependent origination, which this is a subset of, the Buddha's not talking about um, a causal chain for dukkha. He's looking for necessary conditions for dukkha. When we speak about causes, we're talking about metaphysics, how the world works. But the Buddha wasn't um, a, a metaphysicist trying to explain how the world works. He was just trying to find an end to dukkha by looking for a necessary condition for the rising of dukkha that could be turned off, namely craving. So the teaching on dependent origination is about identifying a problem and identifying a necessary condition that can be turned off, like craving. If you can eliminate a necessary condition like craving, you can prevent dukkha. But ending dukkha or preventing dukkha is not all there is to say about conditionality. Dependent origination addresses dukkha, but there's lots more to say about dependent origination. Sometimes we call the larger picture this, that, conditionality. The Pali word for it is idapa paya, idapa chayata, idapa chayata, this, that, conditionality. And what it means is, with this as a necessary condition, that arises. If this doesn't happen, that doesn't arise. With this as a necessary condition, that arises. If this doesn't happen, that doesn't arise. That's in the context of dukkha. But it also applies to everything else. Everything else. 
everything arises dependent on other things. Everything is a sankara. Everything is a concoction. Nothing has inherent existence by itself. Perhaps the deepest teaching of dependent origination, this, that, conditionality, paticca sumapada, idapachayata, perhaps the deepest teaching is the implicit message of not-self embedded in it. The implicit message of not-self embedded in the teaching. Everything is conditioned, including the sense of self. You can see the conditionality working right here. This is just happening on its own. The sense, this sense of self we take to be who we are is not inherently existing. In the greater discourse on craving, the Buddha asks his monks, knowing and seeing conditionality, would you ask, who am I? No, venerable sir. Would you ask, who am I not? No, venerable sir. Don't think in terms of selves. Think in terms of conditionality. There are only streams of dependently arising phenomena interacting. Lee came up with this, and, he's, and the acronym is SOTAPI, streams of dependently arising phenomena interacting. Verbs. Moment to moment, verbs. This cup is a soda pie, I'm a soda pie, you're a soda pie. We're all streams of dependently arising phenomena interacting. In the Samyutta Nikaya, the Venerable Gota asks, what is right view? And the Buddha answers, one with right view does not take a stand about the self, whether there is or there isn't one. Whatever is arising is only dukkha arising. Whatever is ceasing is only dukkha ceasing. In other words, all that's happening is dependent origination, this, that, conditionality, patichasumpada, idapachayata. So, neither the self is inherently existing nor is other phenomena inherently existing. It all comes and goes according to conditionality. But out of our ignorance, our pea brains can't take all of this reality in. So we try to make sense of it by chopping things up into bits and pieces and calling them nouns, including ourselves. But it's really all verbs. And it can all lead to dukkha if we fail to see the conditionality of phenomena. Well, you might say, well, what about brownies and potato chips. They're not, everything's not dukkha arising and ceasing. 
So, okay. Maybe another way to translate dukkha is not a source of lasting happiness. Not a source of lasting happiness. In that way, even brownies and potato chips are dukkha. So insert your mindfulness after Vedana, and in that gap between Vedana and craving, choose how to respond from a place of wisdom rather than automatic pilot based on the downstream mental Vedana. Follow the instructions in the Bihiya Sutta. In the scene, just let there be the scene. In the herd, just the herd. In the cognized, just the thought without adding any more downstream mental Vedana on top of it. Look at the world seeing dependent origination, this, that, conditionality. See only Sotapai. This is right view, not conceiving of nouns, just Sotapai. There's lots of dependently originated phenomena that intersect to make any object that we experience available to us. Lots of streams, all the time. In fact, this is my dependent origination teaching shirt because it's just got all these streams intersecting and going wild. Then these streams of dependently originated phenomena not only come at you, but they emanate from you. I mean, you're breathing out oxygen that the trees are breathing in. It's You're saying words that people are hearing. Uh, you're doing things that affect other things. You're conditioning things and you're being conditioned. Constantly. In all different directions. 